Welcome to this first installment of the special series, Hindsight in 2020. I'm your host, Tom Foolery. I'm wearing my serious cap more often, especially for this series, but I will try to inject some foolery as we go along. But as I sit down to record this in mid-December 2022, amidst all the conversations I continue to have around the events of the last couple years, it is becoming astonishingly clear to me how much mis... I'm going to say misinformation, misunderstanding, miscomprehension of the things that I I think we take for granted in terms of how this is all played out. This is a very forward leap in terms of the sequence of the facts that I want to present to you all in this series, but I had someone share to me their experience at work recently where uh, a colleague was sharing a little bit about their experience getting shots and especially booster shots. And his comment just gave me pause as well as my friend. But apparently my friend's colleague said, yeah, after every booster shot I've had, I just get absolutely devastated and and run down by this. And I think that's a good sign that my body is responding to the virus and the vaccine. And if you don't fully comprehend what's wrong with that statement, I'll be shedding, as I've said, floodlights on the details of mRNA technology. But in a phrase, the virus is not contained in those vaccines. Full stop. So that speaks to my concerns that people do not have the full picture available to them. And I've used this imagery before when it comes to the presentation of information through legacy media, is that it's like a slideshow that is directly in front of your eyes and face. And you, what you cannot see is the mechanism and the slides that get put in and the person who's running the slide projector. Uh, of course, you have to be old enough to know what this mechanism is, and I hope you do. Uh, but the imagery still pertains because you, you are we are inundated by... Uh, this this is a brief tangent, but it was brought to my attention that the modern world of children's entertainment leans so heavily on very very rapid changes of the screen and bright colors and 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 rapid transitions and uh, it's almost no different than the adult version of entertainment, which is which is <laughs> entertainment capital E, but also media of all sorts where our attentions are so easily diverted. And as I've said in the trailer, which I hope you've listened to, and if not, I'm not going to repeat too much from what was mentioned in that trailer, because it's just a, it was my way of setting the stage so I could jump right in here and go back to the early 2000s and, and follow some of the sequence that leads us into 2019, 2020. Uh, But as I mentioned there, there's a reason why we don't have the full picture. And the responsibility I wanted to accept for myself was to, especially as is the promise of this podcast, is being a curator. I want to collect and present and share information that I think would be useful to you all and to friends and family and people you care about in your own spheres. So this is my effort of 
I, I, I think I have a couple disclaimers before I jump in. Uh, number one, I don't quote know all of this information in the firsthand exclusive way that people demands, uh, demand of experts or, or anyone trying to speak from a position of, of, of informed opinion or, or any opinion. So my presuppositions for this information are generally going to be, I think, and I guess, and I believe. And you can take it from there. But I'm certainly going to hold myself to the standard of referencing as much as I can. I will link to the book that has become my textbook for a lot of this. And I, I followed a lot of the events in real time and tried to explore as deeply as I could from as many sources. But this this book that I have here, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey, by Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan, husband and wife authorship. Uh, it, it really is an anthology of, I mean, when they went to print in mid-2022, it's a phenomenal collection of the many, many layers to the COVID-19 theater. And, and I will speak to that particular uh, turn of phrase. Uh, but my, my other disclaimers... Um, when it comes to speaking about some of the players in this drama, Anthony Fauci, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Bill Gates, Peter Daszak, Ralph Barrick, etc., one of my disclaimers, which I will include throughout the presentation, is that I do not hate these people. And I don't consider them to be juxtaposed as evil to any good that I may be promoting or representing. I don't seek violence or, or violent justice to make amends for anyone's errors or, or even deliberate ignorance, which I think is much more a hallmark of the last couple of years, is willful ignorance, as Dr. Jordan Peterson would say. Uh, I, I, I'm doing, I'm, I'm embracing a shift in my own perspective and consciousness about how to better understand evil, good, dark light, and that to... To say that something is a necessary evil is redundant. Evil has its place. There's a beautiful piece of scripture, I believe from Isaiah, that has many different translations throughout the years, but it is a not-too-oft-repeated line of scripture wherein it is declared that God says to the prophet Isaiah, I am both good and evil. And depending on your belief in God, you may be able to let that filter through you and have a better understanding within that that is a truth that brings more light than dark to this world. And so I don't look at these players as evil, bad. I, I, think, that, I think they've done some harm. I think they've made some poor decisions. I think they've been deliberately ignorant or authoritative. Uh, so th those things I am opposed to, but as I said, I, there's, there's nothing about what I'm doing here. And even in my personal life, when I speak about these things that suggests that I, I want to see them brought to a, uh, vicious justice to, to pay for their sins. It's, it's not like that at all. The only balance I see on this scale is to share more information. 
and, and we'll, we'll talk about the level of censorship that's been involved here. But uh, I think lastly, in terms of my disclaimers, before I dive into some of the story here, I also, at the moment, and this is subject to change, I don't condone amnesty or unearned, unasked for forgiveness. Because as I mentioned in the trailer, there's a movement going around, especially in legacy media and people who were so opposed to the freedom of health choices, anti-vaxxers, vaccine hesitant, whatever you want to say. They're, they're hiding behind this belief that we didn't know any better and that our violence of feeling and attitudes our othering of people who didn't react and respond the same way we did. They're, they're trying to, what, what, what I see from this movement is short-term memory loss, honestly. And that, that is a major thread throughout this fabric that the short-term memory loss, and I, I'm going to open shortly with a quote that sort of encapsulates that. But uh, as I've said, we only learn from our mistakes, when we acknowledge them. And to say, you have to forgive me, or, or we need amnesty because we didn't know any better, is, is to stifle our ability to learn from the mistakes. So uh, I, I'm not here as the moral arbiter or judge to, uh, as I said, I'm, I, I'm not banging the gavel down to bring people to justice. But both in the benefit of hindsight and with as much real-time recollection as I can share with you from the last couple of years, we can, as the title of this episode suggests, I want to recapitulate this discussion about what we knew and when. And with that, I want to share with you this quote that was from Bad Catitude, El Gato Malo, which is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite Substack authors. If you're not familiar with Substack, it's a really phenomenal alternative to legacy media, long form, uh, writing people will include some podcasts and video on there, but it, it speaks to the open source innovation of this internet age. And I'm so grateful for it. The people who have used their skill in epidemiology, statistical analysis, uh, mathematics, anthropology, so many different walks of life have, uh, taken up the same path to share as much information as possible. And this quote, probably from late 2021, was one that I had to clip and, and make sure that I had ready for the day when I wanted to share my own collection of information and quotations and statistics to share with you all. And the quote is, that this is the implacable emergent property of a couple of simple rules. Fear spreads in crowds and makes them irrational. Crowds seek to quell fear by forming into in-groups and identifying enemies against which to unify and take action. The rest, as they say, is history. This simple function generates all the complex structures of panic propaganda, pseudoscience, sanctimony, and cultural war. A panicked people loses possession of its reason and abandons not just thought, but training and prior knowledge as well. This is exactly why emergency responders and combat troops drill and drill and drill again 
until response becomes reflex and rational action rote. When you disrupt that, you are on the curve to disaster. You get mob rule when you need expert science. You abandon the science and guidelines you knew just moments before and get so caught up in the need to do something that you wind up doing something crazy. Your training is gone. Your knowledge becomes inaccessible. Fear and emotion reign. That stirred me from the moment I read it because I I was witness to this short-term memory loss where the experts, the people who, who tried to convince us that they knew better were doing things counter to their own literature, to their own fields of study. And, and I knew this because in, in 2020, through the holistic wellness and longevity uh, sphere, some, some, even some very mainstream established physicians were pointing toward people within the same fields of the, at the, as these experts, even within the mainstream institutions of the WHO, CDC, NIH, etc., um, uh, highly published and long-term veteran researchers, practitioners, lecturers, you name it, there was enough disagreement in terms of what was going on with the development of the virus, its origins, its potential treatments, what to do with lockdowns. There was enough disagreement where I was open to adopting what became my mantra for the better part of two years, let's wait and see. When you have disagreement, even if it's extreme, even if it's polar opposite disagreement, first example, this virus is deadly. A, at the end of the, end of the spectrum, B, this virus doesn't exist. People, people within the same fields, people with comparable credentials, I said, let's wait and see. Let's, let's see who, who is right with some research, with some evidence. And you could say that maybe that was because I was young and healthy where I really didn't feel like it was an emergency. But I can assure you that I had a time of being fearful, anxious, and uncertain. Even for my own self, even for my own immune system, which I had right not to fully trust because I was not as committed and disciplined to the tenets of holistic health and honoring my four-doctor system. I still had various vices and and poor choices and poor lifestyle choices and lack of uh, meditation, many things that were leaving me weak to any sort of dis-ease. So I, I was in that boat with you all. As I think we all were. I think from the jump in in March of 2020, the level of anxious uncertainty was high. But as time went on, and I was seeing what became, as I mentioned before, one of the most significant errors made in the handling of the evolving pandemic, I was tuned into the level of censorship that was occurring, especially on social media, let alone in in legacy media. But I I knew censorship to be dangerous anyway. And yet, of course, one of the rallying cries around censorship is that it's for people's protection, that mis- and disinformation is harmful. If if one level of that misinformation is there is no virus, go about your life. 
uh, that's a very hard line to take. And a lot of that is oriented around the society that we have that is so dedicated to safety and yet, of course, leaves us all open to abuses of drugs, alcohol, uh, smoke products, etc. Um, so there's a there's a catch there to be sure. But I saw the danger in that because anytime that you have a novel event and you only permit one story to be told, I, I feel like that's just too limiting. I feel like that narrows the scope of what's possible. And this is one of one of my evolving criticisms of people who identify as experts and especially people who concede so much of their own intelligent autonomy to experts is that the life of experts is a very narrow scope wherein you are not in the habit of seeing connections. This is also a product of the modern age of scientific materialism where the belief is that just by adding or withdrawing some inputs, we all, we all of a sudden feel like we can predict the outcomes. And I, I think you could take some evidence from that just by saying, we're going to close down the country for two weeks, also known as two years. And thinking that that was going to be the hard line drawn against the virus, not appreciating the economic, emotional, mental, physical, you know, cascading impacts of what that would do. And of course, we'll never know what, what just two weeks would have been like because it, it remained in place for so long. Um, but there were people saying, again, wait and see. We have various literature that says for pandemic planning from past pandemics that kids still need to go to school. If, if it's a severe acute respiratory virus, they, they are more likely to just have it filter through them and develop natural immunity. So there's no point in overprotecting them. Uh, there's a triage priority for elderly and immunocompromised that we need to honor. All of that seemed to be thrown out the window and, and hence the potency of that quote I read where fear and emotion reign and your knowledge becomes inaccessible. Your training fails you, especially in the, in the driven by the need to just do something. Which, for anyone in a decision-making position, I'm sure you fully appreciate that doing nothing can be the most daunting choice to make. And I've been confronted with that when I bring up these issues with people. Thomas, would you just have had us do nothing and let people die? And to be honest, I'm firstly grateful that I'm not in those positions of incredible leadership and influence and clout. However, for people who are much better versed in these topics and their broader implications than I, I think there were better strategies that could have and should have been entertained and that were available to, as I said, understand that some portion of the population is, is at a higher danger for contracting and suffering from the virus. How do we help them? For the rest of you, under 70, 60 years old with, you know, de decent metabolic health and no uh, compromising immune issues or comorbidities, um, you're, you're likely to encounter this virus and you'll be down for the count for a week 
and on the other side you will have the great blessing of the virome, which is natural immunity. And there are there are many other ta- tangential pieces to a strategy, but it it was not even remotely entertained. It was such a hard line, which when you take the approach of emergency in wartime, these things seem justified. But what I aim to prove is that there's a different type of wartime mentality that went on. And so with that, I wanted to run through this list quickly because I started to compile this, I think, early 2021, maybe mid-2021, and I haven't edited this list too much. It was really just a, a freestyle of what I saw as the many issues of the era of scientism, especially in the, in the post-COVID world. And this list includes 15 items that I see as different issues that, first of all, were on my desk and things that I saw room for improvement or more discussion. Um, but these are, they're all a, a book and a podcast and a series in and of themselves. But it goes like this. Number one, the origins of the virus. Number two, the virus itself, COVID-19. Number three, the vaccines. Number four, treatments, early and late. Number five, metabolic health versus comorbidities and their respective cohorts. Number six, media coverage and the delivery of information. Related to that, number seven, censorship. Number eight, data collecting and reporting methods, and that's surveillance versus reporting. Number nine, the relationships of big pharma, big tech, big business, and big government. Number 10, the social-emotional impacts especially fear exploited by propaganda and misinformation. Number 11, medical and personal freedom. Number 12, leadership and major players, including Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, President Trump, President Biden. Number 13, the global experience. Not just went on in the United States, but if you compare different countries globally based on were they locked down or were they open, were they highly vaccinated versus low vaccination. Number 14, the history of medicine. And number 15, the history of science. So that covers a lot of ground, and my aim is to get into a lot of that. And the sequence includes the number one item on that list, which is the origins of the virus itself. Now, if you'll recall, especially if you're a news watcher, or or if this was anywhere on your interest radar, or if this was just something that you felt like was going on outside of you and wasn't really touching your world. And to be fair, I, I certainly had that element as well, where there wasn't a, you know, my, my grandparents have been dead many years now, uh, don't have too many other elderly people in my life where, where that, that was not a front of mind concern. Does that mean I was unsympathetic to <laughs> the elderly population at large and other people's grandma, grandpa? No, of course I knew that they had a risk, not only just by dint of being, elderly, which if, if you haven't taken great care of yourself, especially in the home stretch of life, a lot, there's a lot of complications that ensue. So the, and that's just to speak to, I, I, I tried not to narrow my focus because when you narrow your focus, that is part of our animal brain, that stress becomes very high because you cannot see the whole horizon. You, if your focus is narrow, you, you cannot hear or anticipate that thing that is sneaking up on you. 
So I, I tried to buck that in favor of not only just living my life, but a general awareness that I was developing through my own adoption of self-education methods. So uh, the, there was a coincidental element here, but uh, but I, I thought as I was trying to entertain a more scientific, methodical view of what was unfolding, uh, I thought the discussion around the origins of the virus should have been w- wide open, to say the least. Uh, but it, that was one of the things that I first picked up on was how limited that discussion was. That as soon as there was mention that it could have came from a laboratory, it th- that was shut down. And, and, and I wasn't quite there in my uh, worldly <laughs> evolution, but there's a tactic that is becoming more and more apparent, which is a very simple tactic, wherein if you want to discredit an idea, a person, a movement, all you have to do is slap on two words to the discussion of that topic, person, etc. And those two words are, you guessed it, conspiracy theory. So there's some phenomenal mashup videos that I certainly want to link to for everyone's benefit in the show notes uh, that are there are these collections of legacy media, uh, both in print and uh, and on TV, where they mention that any notion that the virus escaped or, or was produced in a laboratory is a conspiracy theory. And those people promulgating that are conspiracy theorists, and we cannot entertain these, these conspiracy theories. One of the ancillary alarming effects that I saw, which I'll, I'll speak to in this uh, sequence, which we're about to dive into, uh, was followed by that denouncement was the defense of the good people of China and the Chinese Communist Party by legacy media, people in the virology fields, politicians. Um, that, that was a a red flag that was sort of opaque. I mean, I, I, and what I mean is that was not as clear to me real time, but in going back and doing my own research of that time, uh, that should have been more alarming for people who are, uh, apprised of the geopolitical, you know, just, just contrarian relationship with China and the United States and many other Western countries, uh, the, the quick defense and praise that was shown to China and their scientific research should, should have been a little disturbing. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why, first and foremost, I mean, I, I was part of a Chinese history course at, at UMass Boston when I was studying there uh, that I, I chose. So it was one of my history elective options, and I, I thought that would have been uh, the most aligned with my interests. And early on in the class, we had a, a professor who was born in China, raised abroad, but he was the first one to shed light on the persecution of Uyghur Muslims in China and opened that door to explore the heavy handedness of a communist regime and how intolerant it is and how image conscious it can be. I mean, the fact that that's not, I, I think, it, I mean, this is several, it might be four or more years ago now when that first entered uh, my sphere of awareness. But uh, it was one of the many classes I was so grateful for over the course of my college education because it did ignite 
a, a questioning element of my brain to say, is, is this really happening and how is it happening and how do we not know about it and why is there not a concerted humanitarian effort to intervene? And that leads you to question the relationships between our country, allegedly the most powerful, influential in the world, and, and another superpower to be sure, and why and how we pick our spots. But I don't want to get too far down that road. But uh, so, so it was just some background to say that I had some skepticism about why certain causes are picked up in favor or against China and, and why others are not. And uh, so, so to revisit this idea of the origins of the virus, I want to dive into my research here, which, and I, I, I do want to skate through the early 2000s, but one of the things that stood out to me was this segment uh, from the New York State Department of Health that came out in February 2000. Now, Anthony Fauci, of course, is a well-known name by this point from being director of the NIH since 1984. He led the uh, campaign against HIV and AIDS. Uh, that warrants another discussion in and of itself. And if I speak to his profile, I will do that in greater detail. But um, th this, I thought, was an interesting place to start because not enough discussion has been given, and certainly was not in early 2020, about I mean, I, I just thought the significance of discussing, did this virus come from nature or from a mechanical creation in a lab? I thought, and I don't, maybe there's a third or fourth or nth choice of options for its origins beyond that. But if we take these two, I think the dichotomy of responses from there can be vastly different, just in terms of how you interact with and treat and plan around a virus that has t completely evolved from nature and an animal hosts and everything that's entailed with that, or that it was fabricated in a laboratory. I, I, I think if you just sit with that question, you can anticipate that might foster very different sets of response strategies. So to that, when I came across in my research, this from February 2000, that I quote, Researchers from the New York State Department of Health in Albany and the Institute of Virology in the Netherlands describe how, quote, coronaviruses generally have a narrow host range, infecting one or just a few species. And, quote, one of the hallmarks of this family is that most of its members exhibit a very strong degree of host species specificity, the molecular, the molecular basis of which is thought to reside in the particularity of the interactions of individual viruses with their corresponding host cell receptor, end quote. This shows the unlikelihood of Fauci's concerns about an animal coronavirus jumping to humans. However, the researchers managed to retarget a mouse coronavirus to make it, quote, cross the host cells species barrier into cat cells. In short, although it rarely happens in nature in the lab, an infectious mouse virus has turned into an infectious cat virus. This project requires the risk of further spread should a mouse or cat escape to infect other animals or people in society. Although coronaviruses are not a high risk for jumping to human beings, they are among the viruses most easily engineered in the lab by humans to cross species. This relative ease of manipulating them is the main reason researchers have always been so interested in them. 
coronaviruses are not a major threat to humans until humans make them into pathogens. So that, that until humans make them into pathogen, pathogens is a big deal. And I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit because somewhat part and parcel of the origins of the virus discussion, as you realize that that's in 2010, 2000, February, early 2000, excuse me, and coronaviruses and their manipulation is already in the scientific sphere. It's already being reported. So, and, and what I'm getting at is that there's a level of expectation, expectation and preparation that should have better positioned us to deal with even a novel coronavirus, even something new and, and with a great deal of uncertainty. But as I'll try to disseminate, I feel like the uncertainty was somewhat fabricated as a facade. And fast forwarding it a little bit to June of 2001, the dark winter exercise portrayed a fictional scenario depicting a covert smallpox attack on U.S. citizens. This, this was an extensive war game by National Security Council in which John Hopkins University plays a role, the first of many activities led by JHU that eventually display specific foreknowledge of the coming coronavirus pandemic. Dark Winter is a precursor to the pandemic predictions and planning events that start multiplying in 2017. So that was a military-run operation to anticipate any sort of bioterror attack. And that was in June of 2000. In 2002 through 2004, and, and I, I'm only jumping around because, of course, we want to get to the depth of detail around the late 2010s and, and of course, 2019, 2020, so the, these threads are tied together, but I don't want to exhaust. I just want to give some context to what was happening and what was in the minds of our experts in the military, in science, in medicine, and what sort of global health events they might have been anticipating. And one such global health event that started in China was in 2002, going all the way through 2004, wherein SARS-CoV-1 appears in southern China in late 2002 and then spreads around the world. It was very lethal, killing nearly 800 out of 8,000 people infected worldwide, but it is or it was contained before causing cases in the United States. China immediately begins engineering the viruses in its lab, indicating it might have been able to engineer it originally from benign bat viruses, but the origin of SARS-CoV-1 remains unknown. In 2004, China's virus lab in Beijing begins experiment, experiencing the first of several accidental releases of variants of SARS-CoV with a limited number of deaths. And that statement remains true, is that if you are willing to do a, a deep exploration into the annals of SARS-CoV-1 analysis, and I'll, I'll speak to them as we get closer to SARS-CoV-2, uh, its origins are in fact unknown. And so... That, I think, begs a relevant question at this point, which is, if from the early 2000s, SARS-CoV-1, which was more deadly, although contained in a reasonable amount of time, with some, with some good attention by countries like China and, and countries from that part of the world, if the origins of that are still unknown, how could the disseminators of information on a mass scale be so certain that they could 
establish the origins of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 to A, 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 an exclusion that it did not come from a lab and B, that it came from a Wuhan wet market. That seems a, a, a shocking pinpoint of its origins uh, that, that I think still, still deserves to be questioned. So at, at the end of 2004, six separate accidental lab contaminations in and around China led to persons infected with variants of SARS-CoV carrying them from labs and sometimes infecting others. Four are from China's Beijing Virus Institute, and we will eventually draw several key observations as we cut through the enormous misinformation campaign by Fauci, Gates, who, the Chinese communists, and, array, and a large array of global predators. But number one is that no, no SARS-CoV has ever been found in nature. Some SARS-like COVs have been found in bats in caves, but it takes enormous scientific and engineering efforts to convert them into viruses that can then infect animal and human cells. Efforts that could no more occur in nature than any other human engineering feat from building out artificial arms to programming computers. So th this is the benefit of some hindsight, but this, this was a fairly quick observation in 2004 that there were no SARS coronavirus. There's other coronaviruses, but a severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus has yet to be found in nature. At that point, I, I won't speak to or spoil any of the future implications, but that was what we knew when SARS-CoV-1 first appeared on the scene. Fast forwarding to 2006, an event that featured the International Finance Facility for Immunization, which, I mean, you know, there's so many acronyms that, that occur here, but uh, uh, this one, when you think of the, the financial element of immunization. We're going to explore the wealth impacts of health, medicine, vaccines, viruses, etc. But uh, it was in 2006 that the International Finance Facility for Immunization was established. The stated purpose of this organization is to enable poorer nations to obtain guaranteed inexpensive loans for purchasing vaccines through novel loan arrangements involving the Bank of America and other funding sources. However, these loans are connected to two predatory organizations, Gavi and CEPI, that's G-A-V-I and C-E-P-I, both of which find ways to increase the markets of the pharmaceutical industry. Gavi describes how it uses proceeds from the bonds. Quote, for Gavi, the proceeds of vaccine bonds help ensure predictable funding and more efficient operations. In addition, Gavi can front-load funds when necessary for rapid rollout of new and underused vaccines. For example, IFFIM funds enabled Gavi to stimu stimulate country demand for the 5-in-1 pentavalent vaccine, enlarging the size of the market, attracting new manufacturers, and reducing prices. The loans will cycle back into the pharmaceutical industry and its investors. So this is our first mention of the global financial implications of virus treatment through vaccines, which... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to speak to the founding of Gavi and Seppi uh, shortly, but if, if we run this quote back, they gave an example of the International Finance Facility for Immunization Funds enabling Gavi, another another organization, uh, you know, non-government and NGO, uh, that there that the funds enlarged the size of the market, attracted new manufacturers, and reduced prices. You hear. I mean, yes, it's a financial organization, but I hope you can 
process that that's a an exclusively economical discussion of a medical treatment. That's somewhat dissonant for me when there's no discussion of health outcomes that this this pentavalent vaccine you know, you know it was it was a short it, it was shortly used because it was so effective i mean th- these are often the things missing from the conversation around purchasing distributing manufacturing vaccines and i'll try to include some more editorial on those but we're jumping ahead now to 2008 a memorable year for many reasons but in 2008 Vanderbilt and University of North Carolina under Ralph Barrick synthesized a bat-like, a bat SARS-like coronavirus, a SARS-CoV that infects live mice and human ciliated airway epithelial cells in the lab. That's a quotation. This breakthrough receives little attention in the media, but it is in fact a turning point. Starting with a harmless bat virus and an added spike protein, they make a SARS-CoV capable of infecting live mice and human lung cells. That human antibodies attack this virus in the living mice and the human epithelium probably inspires the global predators. They could make trillions of dollars on vaccines while enforcing their authoritarian control. It all depends on a COVID-19 pandemic coming along. So I'm reading from a, a sequence, as you may have told, some of the editorial there is not mine. That's the authors when they refer to predators and money making. Um, that is from the Bregans. Of course, I'm grateful t- to them for their work, but... Um, I'll do my best to, to curb some of that and keep it as objective as possible. But that's in 2008 where Ralph Barrick, who will feature in this story in The Origins of the Virus, uh, synthesizes a bat SARS-like coronavirus that infects live mice, live, live mice and human lung cells. The next year, 2009, the company Moderna is founded with the aim of making mRNA vaccines. Despite no products or income, investors pour in money. And I'll share two tantalizing quotes in technical language, show what a dangerous and highly experimental product Moderna is making. And this from 2012, from PLOS1, a publication, says, quote, These SARS-CoV vaccines all induced antibody protection against infection with SARS-CoV. However, challenge of mice given any of the vaccines led to occurrence of T-H-E-type immunopathology suggesting hypersensitivity to SARS-CoV components was induced. Caution in proceeding to application of a SARS-CoV vaccine in humans is indicated. And a financial analysis in April 2021 notes, retrospectively, that Moderna's technology platform inserts synthetic nucleoside modified mRNA vaccine, also known as ModRNA, into human cells using a coating of lipid nanoparticles. This mRNA vaccine then reprograms the cells to prompt immune responses. It is a novel technique abandoned by other manufacturers due to concerns about the toxicity of lipid nanoparticles at high or frequent doses. There's actually a lot contained in that second quotation and two things I just want to highlight for future discussions about COVID-19 treatment are that the, the language in this analysis mentions that this mRNA then reprograms the cells to prompt immune responses. So when, maybe I won't jump too far ahead, but there was so much discussion early on that the mRNA vaccines are not gene therapy. And yet, if you look up gene therapy, one one of the definitions is that whether in communication with DNA or RNA or any sort of genetic sequencing, there's a reprogramming involved in a lot of these definitions. And so... That, that caught my attention. 
of course, uh, I mean, any, any denial, any emphatic denial <laughs> draws my attention. But the second element here is that this analysis says that this technology has been abandoned by other manufacturers due to concerns about the toxicity of lipid nanoparticles at high or frequent doses. Uh, several levels of, of detail there will be explained further on, but if you listen to someone like Dr. Robert Malone, Steve Kirsch, Brett Weinstein, people who early on were skeptical of the lipid nanoparticle coating and its toxicity, um, that that has been a red flag to be sure. Um, also, I mean, in, in th- that's a retrospective analysis, but for Moderna to be founded with just this express purpose of mRNA vaccines, which have a history, the mRNA technology has a history in cancer treatment for chemicals that were supposed to be injected with mRNA technology that would then go all throughout the body to seek out and kill cancer cells that had uh, traveled throughout the the system. Um, just highly dangerous. And, and the, the common thread here to begin with the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the complementing complementary vaccine treatment is that from the jump, they're they seem to be volatile, unpredictable, sort of sort of blurring some lines of ethical medical practice. Maybe that's just my read on it, but as we get further along in the sequence, you, you might see that echoed as well. Um, another sort of historic event in terms of how these things proceed. So to just a quick refresher, in 2008 in December, Ralph Barrick synthesizes a bat SARS-like coronavirus that can infect mice and human lung cells. In 2009, Moderna is founded with the aim of making mRNA vaccines. And in January of 2010, Bill and Melinda Gates call for the next 10 years to be the, quote, decade of vaccines. And anyone who has read up on this knows that the vaccine industry, as we know it in its modern context, that charge has been led by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who also founded Gavi, CEPI, among other organizations, which I'll share in some detail soon. In May of that year, 2010, almost a decade before COVID-19, the Rockefeller Foundation publishes a future pandemic scenario in a business investment-oriented 53-page booklet entitled Scenarios for the Future of Technology and International Development. The first, quote, scenario narrative in the booklet is called Lockstep described as a world of tighter top-down government control and more authoritarian leadership with limited innovation and growing citizen pushbacks. The opening line is, quote, In 2012, the pandemic that the world had been anticipating for years finally hit. So that's a dramatization, but the Rockefeller Institute is immensely influential in public policy, globalization, global economics, health and medicine, uh, I've, I've mentioned, if you listen to my podcast on the peril of isms, especially scientism, it was Rockefeller and the Rockefeller Foundation who steered modern medicine away from any sort of uh, union or reunion with holistic, homeopathic, organic treatments uh, into almost an exclusively pharmaceutical-oriented uh, pathology corrective world of medicine. And so the Rockefeller Foundation, when they publish something or when they speak, people listen and read it. So the fact that you have a 
a future pandemic scenario in this in this business publication that mentions lockstep of tighter top-down government control and more authoritarian leadership, you you start to see where where the the bureaucracy mindset was early on. I mean that's that's 2010. In this in this almost desired anticipation of a pandemic where they would be able to swoop in and save the day, you you see that that does not include words like collaboration, caution, discussion, like like it's 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 a very hard line once again. And I, these are these are all decisions beyond our radar. I mean, shoot, that's 2010. There, there's fledgling social media and there's there's no we don't have a, a public comment like we understand it now through Facebook, Twitter, podcasts. Um, those things don't exist. So when when there's momentum going toward how to handle things like this, there's not a lot of echoing voices to you know, sound the alarm or, or really demand any sort of broader conversation. Um, so, so speaking to another pandemic prediction and planning event, uh, in September of 2011, the United Nations passes Resolution 2030, which called for governments and international corporations to collaborate under the UN to pursue a huge variety of, quote, progressive aims. And this document also mentions vaccines three separate times, and although it preceded the Great Reset and COVID-19, the UN calls for making vaccines universally free, while simultaneously protecting corporations from financial risk or losses. And this is a quote from that resolution, Resolution 2030, wherein the UN produced this quote. One of their aims is to achieve universal health coverage including financial risk protection, access to quality essential healthcare services, and access to safe, effective, quality, and affordable essential medicines and vaccines for all. Here you have one of the early introdu- introductions of one of my favorite phrases, safe and effective. And on paper, trust me, I, I understand the, the promotion of that sort of language. I mean, shoot, uh, Russell Brand has a has a great recent video where it's another video mashup of all the publications talking about that the uh, mRNA vaccines go from 100% effective to now they're in the you know in the in the 30% range uh, over over a couple months. But uh, I understand the the uh, messaging around safe and effective that you you don't want to concern people you want them to have some degree of confidence in following these recommended treatments uh, but especially for something new something something never before tried as we'll get into this discussion you want to see as much evidence as you possibly can and not just not just take any anything on faith i mean i mean the faith has its role in our lives to be sure but when it comes to medical interventions uh, in informed consent is an oft neglected phrase when it when it comes to our our freedom of health choices. So, um, you know, I I, I think that's going to be a big theme of what I'm trying to do here is bring more informed consent to to anyone. That's that's why I talk about uh, 
an informed consent of, of what you want to choose to do in the gym. Do, do you know how effective or safe this exercise is? Do you know how bioavailable this food or this supplement is? Do you know um, how safe it is to talk to your partner this way? <laughs> you know, and, and anything like that is, I, I think, a level of skepticism that needs to be reinserted back into our bigger discussions and, and even our even our personal dialogue. Uh, but I, I, I want to keep on with the sequence here because th- this is another turning point in my book. And, and bear with me because this is a, an important piggyback to the discussion around safe and effective vaccines. And this is from September 21, 2011, when a research article supported by Anthony Fauci's NIAID and the University of North Carolina with Ralph Barrick's name on it, reconfirms and illustrates important problems associated with gain-of-function research with coronaviruses. Number one, it begins by repeating the falsehood that there are many SARS coronaviruses in animal reservoirs waiting to emerge, necessitating investments in research. And this is a quote from that article, that research article, that severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus SARS-CoV is an important emerging virus that is highly pathogenic in aged populations and is maintained with great diversity in zoonotic reservoirs. So we'll, we'll speak to gain of function research in greater depth shortly, but um, it's, it's already underway because of people like Anthony Fauci's interest in it. There, there's a I've, I've neglected to, to say this to date, but th- this so, is so much at the crux of this discussion that there's, at the highest levels of science and medicine, there was this emerging belief in the early 2000s that things like coronaviruses needed to be highly researched uh, in this gain-of-function research where they become, where they're tested and manipulated in labs to it's to say it's a self-fulfilling prophecy is maybe not completely accurate, but um, there was an agenda, and it and it is still underway actually in in the United States research facilities abroad, like at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, wherein the agenda is to play with viruses to see what happens when they become increasingly pathogenic, virulent, deadly. And then you're kind of on the back heel with how to treat them. But at least you've got people in the labs moving that needle and opening more doors to mRNA vaccine treatment. So there's a there's an established connection there, which as I've, I've tried to show, there's a there's a synchronous history to the research, especially gain of, especially gain of function research for. SARS coronaviruses and the development of mRNA vaccines alongside them. But back to this article from September of 2011, um, the researchers also make clear that they already have created numerous pathogenic variations on the original SARS-CoV-1 because they are using them in their experiments. It also verifies two serious problems with SARS-CoV vaccines, namely that vaccines made for one variant of SARS-CoV are not effective for others and aged vaccinated mice exposed to SARS-CoV are not protected and instead are vulnerable to human-like severe immune reactions. The spike protein turns out to be the source of the problem. This is a quote from the article. Importantly, aged animals displayed increased eosinophilic immune pathology in the lungs and were not protected against significant virus replication and, quote, 
When challenged with zoonotic and the human chimeric SARS-CoV incorporating variant-like glycoproteins, the aged BALBC mouse model reproduces severe lung damage associated with human disease, including diffuse alveolar damage, hyaline membrane formation, and death. And this is summed up in the following by the authors to say, like, co- like, like the authors of this book, like COVID-19 itself, deaths from vaccines, especially in older vaccinated people challenged with SARS-CoV-2, were predicted and seemingly planned around. So the, the summary of that research paper just belies that, again, this narrative of obfuscation, that when you have a bona fide research article talking about the, the, the prevalence of zoonotic hosts in, in nature of a coronavirus, and that still that there were these massive complications, which I, I think may come as no surprise as this story involves from any sort of vaccination treatment. Uh, I think that was somewhat bled into the narrative around well, we know a lot about coronaviruses and, we, and we've been working on these mRNA vaccine technologies for a long time. And these are things that on paper have a ring of truth to them, but a major motivation of this podcast, like many others, is to explore deeper levels of truth. And how do you know if something is really true, universally true, applicably true? Is it useful? And... When I, when I became more immersed in this history and I, I discovered things like how in 2015, that was the time when Bill Gates became a major investor in the RNA vaccine industry, uh, which, which coincided with, uh, in, in later 2015, his conception of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, which is CEPI. I've mentioned that before. That was in 2015. And, and as funded through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, one of the most highly profitable nonprofits in the world, uh, and that you have a coalition for epidemic preparedness innovations being funded with, I mean, almost almost, un, almost incalculable amounts of wealth. I mean, there's, there's so much, I, I'm such a, an ignoramus when it comes to tax code, let alone international tax code, but that is a very, that is very murky water to say the least. And, uh, to have an Epidemic Preparedness Innovation Foundation being supported by that kind of money, um, if, if I'm being optimistic, I, th- I think you would just like to see a greater level of preparedness, collaboration, things I've mentioned before, where if you do have something sneak up on you, like an epidemic, pandemic, then maybe you've got the resources and the research and you've combed through enough of history to come up with a an effective approach but effective as we know can be elusive also in january coincidentally at the berlin pledging conference in 2015 the bill and melinda gates foundation announces 1.55 billion for gavi's next 2016 to 2025 strategic period this is another foundation or coalition being funded through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, receiving $1.5 billion over a nine-year period. And Gavi is the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. And like many of the Gates Ventures, has been criticized for representing the interests of the pharmaceutical companies. 
which is largely true, as we'll see as this sequence continues to unfold. But that's another organization that is directed by Bill Gates and beholden to just vast sums of money. Think about what I mean, you, you, you may say what, what, a, what a great use of $1.5 billion over nine years to research vaccines and immunization. But as has come to light with his organizations like CEPI, like Gavi, they have these relationships with pharmaceutical companies which foster what I think is a great deal of conflict of interest. When, when you then get into the agreements made with governments, health agencies, other businesses, nonprofit organizations, that that just becomes a a, a miasma that like I, I, I can hardly speak to in, in the time that I want to get to uh for for more of this story. But um yeah, I, if if you can use your imagination for the moment to just just, just yeah conceive of how complicated that can get with that much money and that mu- that many uh, different players involved. It can be a challenge, to say the least. Also in 2015, which seems to be a hallmark year, in December, Vineet Menachery and Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina make the great breakthrough. They transform innocuous, innocuous bat coronavirus into epidemic SARS-CoV pathogens that infect live mice and human lung tissue preparations. The research collaborations create at least two nightmare scenarios, a major risk of the poorly managed Wuhan Institute accidentally leaking one of its many man-made SARS-CoV pathogens, and the certain step of advancing the potential for biological warfare. A lot of this has been produced with NIH funding, which, as a director of the NIH, Anthony Fauci is most likely, as we're finding out in various court hearings, he is the final arbiter of funding. Um, and in, in relationship to what Menachery and Barrick were doing at the UNC, at UNC, uh, other U.S. researchers are collaborating with top Chinese scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is because it is a, a, a because it is a science scientific establishment in China that makes it or or it falls rather under the protection and responsibility of the Chinese Chinese Communist Party and its military because anything that goes on in the scientific community in China or with Chinese researchers abroad or that comes into the realm of, of research of international renowned, um, it is all dedicated to the Chinese Communist Party and the advancement of their one China, of their technological innovations. So there's nothing that goes on in China, especially like, like in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that does not come into direct contact with the politicians and the military leaders of that country, which when I fully appreciated what that meant, it does give some momentum to the 
concerns around bioterrorism. That if this is so much at the fore of research in an in a lab setting of virology, where highly infectious pathogens are being regularly experimented with, uh, whose benefit or detriment could that fall to? And I'll leave that there for a moment because I don't want to make that too much of the story because we have other things to get to. Um, but it certainly is part of the story because, as I mentioned earlier, when it came to the defense of China uh, and, and Chinese scientists, it, it was a little off-putting that it was so immediate and widespread this fierce denial that uh, you know China, that the Wuhan Institute of Virology could possibly have leaked anything. Although, if <laughs> if you'll remember John Stewart's great bit on Stephen Colbert, I believe it was John Stewart, uh, but I think he said it seems infinitely more like we were so worried about being racist. Uh, you know, when we were accusing people were accusing uh, the Chinese of, and our government of covering up a lab leak of a lab that was largely funded by the National Institute of Health and the NIAID under Anthony Fauci. Uh, we were so concerned about protecting any racist notions against the Chinese that something would leak out of their lab. And somehow we thought it was better to say that their wet market of bats had, <laughs> had produced, uh, this virus. And, and I'm with John. I mean, I think it's way more offensive to say that you gross Chinese people with your bats hanging in the market are the reason we now have a virus. I, I think that's grotesquely offensive uh, compared to the nature of working with highly infectious pathogens in a lab that is dedicated to virology. Um, you know, I, 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 I think that's... I think that's part of a narrative that is concerned with the wrong things when we're trying to get to the truth of the matter. And a version of the truth that someone wants to focus on is whether or not we're offending people on a on a racial basis. Um, yeah, I, that, that, those are those are parts of the story that I thought were really misguided um, from from the jump. Um, you know, like that, that, that level of subterfuge, when so much is at stake, again, for, for just coming up with strategies of how you respond to and treat a virus, if, if there's a deliberate story being told, which is counter to a potential truth, I, I think those, those things are harmful. I do. Um, what, one thing I want to mention before we go on, just to give a little bit more light, I, I neglected this in my sequence, um, but th this age of, of gain-of-function research has been largely promoted by Anthony Fauci. The, a lot of controversy has swirled when people have gone back through uh, the, the modern age of executive orders and realizing that um, there was a moratorium placed on gain-of-function research, I believe, by the Obama administration. And although gain-of-function was already underway by then, uh, the, the, I think the Obama, Obama administration, for whatever reason, elected to place a moratorium on that and say, 
and I think it was out of their concerns for uh, you know any any sort of bioterrorism, bio warfare that that could uh, be enacted through that. And despite that, Anthony Fauci and the NIH and NIAID continue to channel money to places like the Wuhan Institute of Virology through organizations such as the EcoHealth Alliance. EcoHealth Alliance is uh, kind of another buzz phrase that um, has has entered the discussion around the origins of the virus. Um, two, two of their major partners to sort of back the validity of the EcoHealth Alliance include The Lancet, the major medical publication, and the WHO. Peter Daszak, another... Another feature player in this drama is the director. Um, and he was someone who, in the early 2000s, was espousing this idea that, and this is a quote from him, that viral outbreaks are happening more frequently, spreading quicker, killing more people, and crushing our economies. Now, you would think the way he was saying that, like we would have heard about the way that viral outbreaks were happening more frequently, spreading quicker, killing more people and crushing our economies. You figure before 2019, that would have been a major story. And yet that seemed to have been only in his laboratories. But um, I mean, that was early as 2008 when Anthony Fauci through the NIH was openly funding EcoHealth Alliance for for groups of projects under the under the heading. I mean, this was a, a segment of their uh, research funding category. Uh, projects under the name of risk of viral emergence from bats. So again, that's another like if if, if you're starting to wonder where you know why the Wuhan wet market bat origin story came from. It's because from the jump, we did have some inkling that this was a bat coronavirus. And when you understand this bigger picture that in 2008, there was funding from the National Institute of Health dedicated to viral emergence from bats, you start to see these dominoes at least line up, if not fall into place. Um, you know, at, at, and, and, and right away, it, people like, like Ralph Barrick at UNC and, and Vineet Menagerie were lead, leading that charge of bat coronavirus exploration, synth, synthesizing, manipulation. Um, that's been, so yeah, I mean, just just have that as the benefit of your information that uh, since at least 2008, bat coronavirus research has been underway. Um, I mean, I, th- I think some other relevant details here in before we get back to sort of 2016-17 era, uh, in September of 2013, $10 million was awarded from the NIH to Ralph Barrick directly at UNC for the development of vaccines in response to coronaviruses. Um, preceding that, in sort of what, what I think is, is relevant to mention here, uh, Fauci, when asked about gain-of-function gain of function research, was using the language in referring to benefits and risks assessment on behalf of multiple stakeholders. And his communications on that subject have included his mention of NGOs, pharmaceutical companies, uh, the general public, health institutions, governments. Like, like he, he understands this 
modern lingo of material economic terms where, I mean, he's a public health official talking about multiple stakeholders when it comes to pandemic treatment. And Dr. Peter McCullough has since pointed out that he's, he, the reference more often than not to multiple stakeholders are global bureaucrats, billionaires. I mean, people who are so far beyond our reach and yet they are the ones making decisions. So that, I mean, that's, that's the whole language around stakeholders is that, you know, I, I remember learning about that in business school is that's such a, that's another major buzzword of your stakeholders and your stockholders. And like, it's, again, it is this reductionist economic way of looking at things that doesn't fully appreciate the interconnectedness of life and especially our, our global life. Um, so I, I just wanted to pepper in a couple more of those details, um, before we get into, to some of the elements of what went on in 2017 and 2018. Um, it was in 2016 that Shi Zheng Li, who has since been known as Bat Lady, because she is the director of Bat Coronavirus Research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, it was in 2016 in some research papers that she was acknowledged for her access and creation of, access to and creation of Bat Coronavirus sequences and spike proteins. Spike protein, we, we've mentioned that with the vaccine. It's it's another uh, core element of the makeup of this coronavirus. These these spike proteins are part of the crown. Uh, I, bl- I believe that's my comprehension of it. Um, and Shi Zheng Li is another player in this. As I said, she was affectionately uh, uh, nicknamed Bat Lady or Bat Woman, I forget which, by the media as another. I mean, she was one of these people propped up as just this bastion of, of adventurous scientific research and someone who was t- totally protected from any sort of criticism in the, in the early and latter parts of 2020. Uh, but as early as 2014, the NIAD, NIAD of our country, the United States was funding her work at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, an, an April 2020 Newsweek article reported that $3.7 million over six years for a five, uh, excuse me, $3.7 million for a five-year project was dedicated to her and her team collecting and studying bat coronaviruses. And if, you, if you've heard about her, you, you know these heroic portrayals of her in the caves and, uh, you know, her... Uh, you know, d- d- being bitten by these bats and still, you know, working with them in the in the lab. Uh, she is one of these people who is is leading this charge in, I mean, literally caves and labs for very very dangerous work. And I mean, the the prevailing medical and scientific opinion, with some exceptions, has been. The risk reward is so out of balance here because if you have an escape of a pathogen that you don't fully know or know how to treat, then you get, drumroll please, 2020 to 2022, the COVID-19 pandemic. You have a runaway train. Uh, and I mean, th- throughout this book that I've read, there I, I'll spare you the details, but uh, it, it became apparent that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is not known 
for its safety and health practices. It, it is known to have not necessarily escapes, but uh, people working there bitten by bats, uh, not wearing gloves, not wearing protective suits, not wearing face shields. Not, not, none of the hygiene was a, I mean, they, they've had many uh, marks against them for, for uh, hygiene and, and health practices. So uh, I'm, I'm not just like sprinkling that in there to besmirch them. It's part of this story of plausibility that if, is, is this a, likely plausible candidate for virus escape not least of all because of all of the gain of function activity that was going on there Uh, i'm referring to my notes again here that between 2014 and 2019 there were seven grants from the niaid to the eco health alliance which is peter dazak and ralph barrick we've mentioned them before for gain of function including quote Franken-mice, a.k.a. human mice, that are modified with human receptors to enable them to be infected with human coronavirus. So this, this is all this game. I mean, th- when, you, when you get into the narrative around gain of function, it is dangerous. And you might say, well, good, that way we're, we, we have the best of the best protecting us. And yet, I mean, it, it's, it's playing with fire without any flame retardant gear on. I mean, that's, that's one of my takeaways from this story is like so much of scientific materialism is just forging this path through the darkness and not bothering to light your way. Like it's, it's just, it's just doing things to see how far we can go before we run up against an issue. And, and to a degree, yes. I mean, that's, that's an important piece of scientific discovery it's also said that the best scientific discoveries were made accidentally. I think there's a, there's a lot of validity in that history. Um, but I'm, I'm, I might be weaving too many webs at once here. Um, but I, I, I wanted to shed light on some of these players because uh, and, and their relationships with some of the some of the institutions of, of global health and, and public health. Um, I mentioned that the EcoHealth Alliance is intimately involved with The Lancet. The Lancet was one of the first publications to denounce the lab leak as a conspiracy theory. And they defended and deflected from China every accusation, praised Xi Jinping, Li, praised Ralph Barrick, Peter Daszak. Um, the, not only are those conflicts of interest, but like it's, it's just it's unscientific to be that defensive in favor of your people just because they're your people. And... That, that's very much a theme in politics, which is why I mean, I'm about to uh, sort of hit an intermission here with this segment with another great quote about that, about public health, about the issues when you have so many people playing for one team where it's just about our team. It's not about the truth. But revisiting our sequence again, it was in January of 2017 that Homeland Security publishes a 135-page grand plan for an interagency response to, quote, biological incidents. So you'll note here we have another defense department weighing in on on this element of biological incidents, bioterrorism, and one of the plans that they put into place was the application of the emergency use authorization. If you're familiar with the EUA, it's risen to prominence because that is how we got these 
mRNA vaccines and these coronavirus treatment vaccines. And there's a lot of issues with that, but part of it comes from its origins in this emergency planning of, of what do you do when you're the Homeland Security and you are trying to coordinate an interagency response to, quote, biological incidents, uh, what plans do you need to have in place to expedite your response? So again, I want, I want to give some, some balance to this to say maybe you do want things expedited if, if they're that drastic. But uh, when it, to apply this to the present example, if, you're, if you have this severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus that you are fearful of, but it doesn't seem like a bioterrorist attack, if it escaped from a, a wet market in Wuhan, Many, many months after some people had heard about it, uh, does that really necessitate this militaristic authoritarian response? And there were a lot of people, physicians, scientists, public health experts, teachers, parents, who were critical of that response from the jump, just to say, do we really, is this something that we really need to shut everything down for as if we're under attack? And that was a prevailing messaging. Um, and, and here in my sequence, again, not, not to gloss over the EUA, there's more to be said about that when we get into the discussion of early treatments and, and vaccinations and all that. But um, worth noting that on January 9th of 2017, it was Barack Obama's administration that officially recommended, and I had this backwards earlier, uh, the Obama administration officially recommends lifting the moratorium on gain-of-function research and provides the necessary steps to be taken, including that this recommendation was made by John Holdren, who was the White House Director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP. He was also known as the Science Czar. The American Report identifies Holdren as an advocate of, quote, massive-scale human population reduction measures, such as adding re reproduction sterilization, reproductive sterilization agents to food and water supplies, and enacting forced abortions in the United States. I want to pause here to just, just tantalize you a little bit with one of the more intriguing conspiracy theories, I think, because it's from... And, and maybe I'm doing it a disservice, but I, I want to use the common parlance for these things, that some people do believe that there are highly placed decision makers who have long believed in Thomas Robert Malthus, the, the Malthusian concept that as the population grows, resources will only be depleted and will be forced to mitigate population growth. And Holdren, as it turns out, is one of those people. Furthermore, President Obama's Health and Human Services Director, responsible for authorizing and implementing the lifting of the gain-of-function moratorium, is Sylvia Matthews Burwell, former president of the Global Development Program and chief operating officer of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And when you... There are so many people like... John Abramson, uh, who was on Joe Rogan, among other podcasts, talking about the incestuous relationships of big pharma, government, big business, just, just, they, they all just seem to trade jobs year after year. I mean, there's so many people at the FDA who, I mean, they, they, it's, it's a ping pong match. They've either served as, ex as executives 
at pharmaceutical companies and are now at the FDA, or they were at the FDA and then have taken jobs at pharmaceutical companies. And I mean, one spoiler for the vaccination discussion is that the FDA is hardly even an oversight committee because they relinquish the 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 data review and publication of any sort of drug to the drug manufacturers. The FDA just comes and looks at their publication and say and says to the drug company, "Is this everything you got?" Drug company says, "Yep." FDA says, "Great," or they say, "Nope." But that's it. The FDA is not doing their own independent research. They're, they're not conducting the clinical trials. It's it's the drug companies. And so when you have the ping pong match of people running back and forth among these institutions, uh, I, I think it erodes a lot of what we understand as public health. When private interests and profit seem to really be the priority for the most part. Um, so I had that backwards earlier when I said that the Obama administration enacted the moratorium. Um, that was actually President Trump, which we'll get to in a little bit. But the Obama administration, including these two characters of John Holdren, who was the science czar with this believe in, in, in massive scale human population reduction, and Sylvia Matthews Burwell, who used to be um, chief operating officer of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, we're seeing just familiar stripes on these jerseys, uh, although they might be taking different jobs and have different operations. Um, they seem to have uh, some some common interests in mind. Uh, January 2017, also an eventful year, where Fauci keynoted a Georgetown University conference on, quote, pandemic preparedness in the next administration, where he says unequivocally that President Trump will definitely face a pandemic during his first term. And he expressed that certainty several times during his talk. So this is all with the momentum behind him of his gain-of-function research, his involvement with pandemic preparedness, where he's confident, it appears from, from this talk at Georgetown, that President Trump is going to encounter a pandemic. Uh, just, a, just less than a week later, the FDA announces new guidelines for its emergency use authorization, which had originally been passed by Congress in response to 9-11 bioterrorist concerns. And the new FDA regulations reinforce the high-speed development and productions of med medications and vaccines in a pandemic, bypassing the FDA's usual safeguards and creating billion-dollar boondoggles for the drug companies and their investors. This is more momentum going toward expediting of treatment. Um, despite what we know, despite the, the fail safes and, and, uh, guard posts that we have in place. And this is another, this is, this is also in early 2017 where we're starting to get more into the, the global predatory nature of some of these, uh, public forums and few are more famous than the world economic forum, which is a Davos conference and it's run by Klaus Schwab. Uh, a lot of celebrities attend. I mean, I mean, if the World Economic Forum is not on your radar, you don't have to do much research to find out what they're all about. They're very much a hiding in plain sight type organization. They have picked up the unrewarded <laughs> responsibility of making decisions about the future of the planet and people's 
access to food, water, resources, treatments. Um, and it seems to fly in the face of a lot of what we believe in the United States in freedom and rights to choose. Um, but I wanted to mention this briefly from the March, 2017 convention of the world economic forum, uh, where Gates unveiled his new fund for CEPI, which is the coalition for epidemic preparedness and innovations and founded by the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation. It announced that Klaus Schwab's world economic forum is a co-founder and co-partner. And this you know, part of this announcement included Bill Gates's communication that CEPI will become a multi-billion dollar collaboration between private donors and corporations, the United Nations, and national governments to research and manufacture vaccines for much-anticipated pandemics. So I'll run that back for you just so you can understand the scale of this, that a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation coalition for epidemic preparedness innovations is a multi-billion dollar collaboration between large private donors and corporations, the United Nations, and national governments. It doesn't get much bigger than that. At the end of 2017... Moderna's chief medical officer, Dr. Tal Zaks, compares mRNA to a, quote, line of code in a computer program and declares that with the new mRNA vaccines used experimentally for cancer treatment, quote, we are actually hacking the software of life, end quote. Why do I bring this up? That, that, that might seem like a throwaway quote, but based on my research into scientific materialism, there is now a prevailing movement toward transhumanism where for the sake of sustainability or for the sake of the species, however, whatever the spin is, there's this infusion of technology. And, and what disturbs me is the technological language. So when you have someone like the chief medical officer of Moderna talking about that MRNA is the injection of a line of code into computer programming, or that with MRNA vaccines as experimental cancer treatment, that they're hacking the software of life. Now with, with booster shots, they talk about uh, upgrading your immune system software. This, this transhumanism lexicon, it, it disturbs me because I, I mentioned in that Parallel of Isms podcast as well, the collection of bio data, everyone with, with wearable technology tracking their heartbeat, their, their calorie intake, their blood type, um, in the, in this day and age of data collection, like if you think all that shit is just throwaway, if you think that you don't care about your biomedical tracking and information, uh, keep in mind that there are people at Moderna, at the UN, at the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation who want to use, to collect that and use that. And they want, and Maybe it's a bit of a reach, but maybe not. I mean, even people like Elon Musk talk about this. They they are promoting a blend of humans with technology, and mRNA technology is part of is one piece of that puzzle. Um, so I I I can't think of it at the moment, but um, Elon Musk talks about his technology where you don't even have to speak. I mean, it's just telepathy for communication. Uh, with with microchips and um, 
that that is very much when we talk about I've, I believe it was Carl Jung, my other favorite Swiss other than Roger Federer. I know I've said that before, but uh, he talked about the self, capital S E L F, about anything that sustains you. So that is that that includes family, so relationships, the sun, the soil, water, air, happiness, challenges movement, anything like that that sustains us. And and when you have something that changes your immune system, which which has such a major bearing on the rest of our bodily functions and also our uh, just how our body is is comprised and the ability to regenerate cells, let alone protect us from viruses, uh, when you have a fundamental change to your genetic coding and communication, you are changing yourself. You are altering your consciousness, as in your your body's innate consciousness, um, and and that is with technology. We we talk about this all the mRNA technology. It's a. It does seem like a transhumanist effort to, again, just just blend more people with. With technology. And this is this is apropos of, of our sequence here because on March 20th, 2018, a scientific review describes a huge upsurge in mRNA vaccine research, bringing in a, quote, new era in vaccinology. But the review also warns that moving from animal to human research has been stymied by two problems. One problem involves, quote, rare cases of severe injection site or systemic reactions, quote, end quote from mRNA requiring further further preclinical and clinical studies into systemic inflammation. And the other problem is ineffectiveness in generating immunological responses in humans. So in 2018, those were issues being faced. And at the same time, there was a table published, uh, I believe in that review, that revealed that Moderna was being funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as well as by DARPA. And DARPA does advanced research for the Department of Defense. It's also been funded by BARDA, which will become the government agency for implementing Operation Warp Speed. And the table also reveals that Gates was involved with CureVac AG, which is in partnership with several other companies, including Johnson & Johnson. So there's a lot a lot to unpack there. I mean, but, but with Moderna and their explorations of mRNA technology... They have this backing from one of the world's wealthiest men and the United States Department of Defense. So those are, those are formidable partners, to say the least. And uh, I, I think the point I want to make at this juncture is that when you have those sorts, when you have that brand of support, money and, let's say, military power and clout, who the hell is going to oppose that? Who? And, w- and with what resources to match it? I mean, it's, it's formidable to say the very, very least. There's one, you know, we're, we're nearing the end here of this segment, but one other occurrence under the umbrella of these pandemic predictions and and planning that went on uh, occurred in October of 2018. 
when the John, John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health Division of Health Security is the source of all JHU pandemic planning events. In a terrifying book titled Technologies to Address Global Catastrophic Biological Risks, describes developing projects for dealing with upcoming pandemic threats, specifically including, but not exclusively, SARS and MERS coronaviruses. And it is a blueprint for how to take control of society and to enforce vaccines despite any public opposition. The Bloomberg School of Public Health book becomes chilling when it goes on to advocate solutions that have been previously ridiculed as conspiracy theories. And this is from the book. Self-spreading vaccines are genetically engineered to move through populations like communicable diseases, but rather than causing disease, they confer protection. The vision is that a small number of individuals in a target population could be vaccinated, and the vaccine strain would then circulate in the population much like a pathogenic virus, resulting in rapid widespread immunity. Furthermore, the Hopkins report sees this technology as posing lethal risks about which their only concern seems to be alienating public opinion. This quoted from the book. Finally, there is a not insignificant risk of the vaccine virus reverting to wild-type virulence, as has sometimes occurred with the oral polio vaccine, which is not intended to be fully virulent or transmissible, but which has reverted to become both neurovirulent and transmissible in rare cases. This is both a medical risk and a public health perception concern. The possibility of vaccine-induced disease would be a major concern to the public. So, I thought that was worth sharing because this is the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health talking about, I mean, dare I say, advocating these self-spreading vaccines and already trying to mitigate any sort of hesitancy from the public about not following their lead. And I think I've sufficiently set the stage for what occurred in December 1 of 2019 which were reports of cases of viral pneumonia beginning to show up in China. Although retrospectively, there would be reports of possible cases earlier in November. The pandemic will become a boon to all the globalists from here on out. And worth noting that this was the start of a timeline, which includes the Chinese communists, whose 400 billionaires grew their wealth by an average of 60% in the first year of COVID-19. And that was December 1 of 2019, when the viral pneumonia started to come up and there were some concerns. But shortly thereafter, in January of 2020, multiple scientific sources within China conclude that SARS-CoV-2 is a chimeric or man-made virus based on, among other things, the artificially tailored spike inserted into the virus, which enables it to attack humans and is not found in nature. From there, China begins censoring, punishing, and disappearing doctors, scientists, and journalists who describe the pandemic or identify its source as the Wuhan Institute. One researcher rejects his original conclusions. One physician dies, and another disappears. One courageous scientist flees to America to tell the truth. WHO covers up for the Chinese and repeats their lies. And from now on, the entire array of globalists who dominate Western governments, media, educational institutions, medicine, and science will declare that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was not the origin of the virus and that it came from nature. It was then that social media begins deleting or taking down comments, calling SARS-CoV-2 the Chinese virus or attributing it to the Wuhan Institute. And it is labeled as a baseless conspiracy theory. 
However, the Communist Institute has been creating virulent SARS coronaviruses from before 2015, as we've covered in this segment, some in collaboration with U.S. scientists and many on its own. Anthony Fauci's NIAID and Francis Collins' NIH fund the collaborative research with the Chinese communists, and they also fund individual Chinese researchers like Shi Zhengli, working in the Wuhan Institute. Every Chinese researcher works under the control of the Chinese Communist Party and their army, and the Wuhan Institute is de facto a military facility. Beyond that, the Wuhan Institute is notoriously insecure, and Chinese research facilities have had numerous leaks of sars coronavirus and other virus in recent years. And on January 21st of 2020, the Chinese communists belatedly admit human-to-human transition of the new coronavirus, and the U.S. CDC confirms the first case. And it's here that I pause to share with you a quote that furthers the, the backstory of this drama that's about to unfold at a rapid pace. In January, we have the CDC confirming the first cases of coronavirus. I think it wasn't until March, late March, that any sort of shutdowns or, or real acknowledgement that it had landed really took place. So we've, we've talked about many of the factors in the pharmaceutical industry, the medical scientific research worlds, a little bit of politics. Uh, but this, this was a great quote from an article I had read uh, from a, a, a German virologist who wrote that, when public health and allied medical and educational organizations censor scientists and healthcare professionals for debating scientific controversies, thus giving the public the false impression that there are no legitimate controversies, they misrepresent and grievously harm science, medicine, and the public by removing the only justification public health has for asking citizens to undergo various privations that these requests are based on a full, unhampered, and open scientific process. Those who censor or block this process undermine their own claim to speak in the name of science or public safety. And I share that quote with you as a segue into part two of this episode because I, I wanted to share all that history with you of the last hour and a half to present the potency of the forces that influenced so many decisions from January 2020 and beyond. And it included a a grievously harmful effort to censor any debate, any discussion. And that that is harmful, especially as that quote says, when you ask or demand that people undergo various hardships, when, when, you, when they think that what they're getting is the product of a full and open scientific process, when what they're getting is an agenda, is a lockstep movement that doesn't allow for debate, that doesn't allow for conversation, that doesn't allow for alternative, that has a stranglehold, on messaging, on strategy, on response. That is not in the public interest. And in this next segment, I aim to prove even more that we were harmed more than helped 